hopefully you have an outline there. And uh, we're in Second uh, Samuel chapter 18 tonight. Second Samuel chapter 18. And uh, we're going to open a word of prayer and then we'll get started. Father, we just thank you for the place we can gather in tonight and, and thank you for your word that we can come and, and open it up and have our own personal copy of it and, and um, ask your spirit to help us understand the words we read tonight. And Lord, we just pray that you would uh, um, allow us to have a continual hunger for your word throughout the week. And, and Lord, we just uh, thank you for those that come out in the middle of the week. And Lord, we pray for those who can't make it, that you would just be gracious to them uh, during this time as well. And um, we pray tonight that you would just uh, bless our time together. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. So tonight we're going to be looking at Second uh, Samuel chapter 18 and up to about verse 8 of 19. Someone asked last week, uh, we went through so many chapters. Remember, the chapters aren't, they aren't in the original text. <laughs> it's just they're meant to break it up for us. So sometimes the train of thought will continue on to the next chapter even. And so sometimes we'll, we'll take off and uh, study irrespective of the of the divisions because sometimes it's hard to stick to those but last time we were dealing with um Absalom uh, last week we were talking about David's uh trail of tears when he was leaving uh, Jerusalem he uh went to uh Mahanaim. they basically kicked him out he left uh Jerusalem before Absalom got there and it's his son who basically overthrew David. And the one thing that tonight we're going to look at is, um, well, it's the last time we're going to be dealing with Absalom. Let me say that. <laughs> Absalom, we're not going to talk about Absalom after tonight for the most part. Um, he, he took center stage back in, in, in chapter 13, if you remember. And he was all about the hair. You know, this was a guy who was, was kind of like a celebrity, you might say. Uh, you know, he's one of those guys that's famous for being famous. Uh, Kardashian or whatever. You know, they don't really do anything. They're just famous. Um, that's kind of what he was. He was the, the, the king's son, good-looking kid, and had beautiful hair, and everybody was attracted to him. You can imagine, you know, teenage girls in that day probably had his poster hanging up in their bedroom, you know. Oh, Absalom, look at his hair, you know. Uh, he was the poster boy for Israel. But he was also a self-promoter. He's one of these guys that just couldn't help but promote himself. And we'll see even tonight, uh, before he died, he even built a, a monument to himself, and he called it Absalom's <laughs> Monument. So he wasn't shy about bragging on himself. But he was one of these guys that had more form, you might say, than content. Um, he had more style than substance and, and, and definitely more promise than reality. You know, he was an influencer, Make no mistake about it, he had the ability to influence people because he got the whole nation of Israel on his side uh, based on his, his influence. But what's, what's sad in the end, when we see how this, this ends, it begins with, with David making plans for, for uh, battle that will end this revolt of his own son. And um, it ends with the same David, the warrior who's making plans for battle, basically curled up in the fetal position, almost immobilized with grief over the son who is trying to dispose him. So it was kind of a, it's, it's kind of a, a crazy chapter. There's a lot of contrast in this chapter. 
Um, probably the most interesting contrast is the, the contrast between Joab, uh, David's um, general, the guy that runs the, the military, and David concerning the fate of Absalom. Remember, at this point, Absalom is the enemy of God's chosen king, David. And even though he's David's son, he's trying to do a coup here. He's trying to overthrow God's legitimate king. And so you have this picture of this broken-hearted father. And um, one commentator, commentator said this, It's a man to whom what was the best news to him as a king was the worst news to him as a father. And that's what we're going to find out tonight. And so it opens up with Absalom planning this, this final assault upon the king, and it closes with Absalom being buried under a pit of stones. So it doesn't work out too well for Absalom. But <coughs> let's go through this, and we'll make some comments and then make some uh, application at the end. But we first hear, hear the, the refusal um, in, in verses 1 to 4 of chapter 18. It says, Then David mustered the men who were with him and set over them commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds. Now remember, David didn't have an army. I mean, everything, you know, he left that behind and, and, and some people didn't go with David. So it probably took some time here to rebuild this. And this is where the last chapter, the council that, that Absalom got, remember, from the mole that said, you know, I, I wouldn't go in there and just overthrow David right away. I'd give him, give him some time, you know. And remember, um, David sent a spy into Absalom's camp, the counselor, and he said, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't follow his advice because your, your dad's a horrific warrior and he'll probably just wipe you out. So why don't you just give him some time? And he was really buying David time to, to do just this, to, to kind of muster all these men together. And so he does, he does that here into thousands and um, commanders of hundreds. And this is what David does. He could probably do this in his sleep. Okay, Absalom, on the other hand, has no clue what he's doing. He just has people following him because he's got nice hair. You know, he's the Breck, Breck boy. Remember Breck? Do they still have Breck? Do they still sell that? Um, Breck shampoo. So, verse 2, and David sent out the army, and this is his strategy here, one-third under the command of Joab, that's his military leader, very patriotic individual, totally loyal to David, and Israel, uh, one-third under the command of Abishai, who is Joab's brother, and then the son of uh, uh, Zeruiah, and then Joab's, uh, Joab's brother, and one-third under the command of Ittai the Gittite. So you have two Israelis and one um, Gentile here, but they're all, they're all good. They're all loyal to the king. And the king said to the men, I myself will also go out with you. So David's thinking, okay, I'm going to have a piece of this action too. I'm not just going to sit here and do nothing. Uh, We're going to take care of this. And I think more than... This is where David's emotions get involved in this, I think. He's probably going there so he can try to still win over his son somehow. But the reasoning, he shot down. Um... So he wants to go out with all this military might, verse 3. But the men said, you shall not go out. For if we flee, they will not care about us. If half of us die, they will not care about us. 
but you are worth 10,000 of us. Therefore, it's better that you send us help from the city. And so the king said to them, all right, well, you know what? Whatever seems best to you, I will do. So the king stood by at the gate of the city, by the side of the gate, while all the armies marched out by hundreds and by thousands. So David wants to go with them. He wants to be their leader. He wants to be a warrior that he is. But wisely, probably Joab says, hey, listen, if you go with us, it's going to end one of two ways. You know, either we're all going to die or we're going to win. But if we just go by ourselves and you're not with us and the battle gets kind of bad and we have to retreat, if you're not with us, they're not going to chase us. They'll just let us go. And it, it cut the losses. So you have to think more than just yourself here, David. You've got to think of all these men you're kind of leading out here into battle. And, you know, the best way to do it is let us do what we're trained to do. And you just stay back here and give us uh, support from the city. And that's not Jerusalem. That's uh, Menahem, I think is, is the name of it. Uh, Mahanim. And so he is in the city. He's waiting by the gate. And they, they marched out by the hundreds and thousands. Now that's a pretty big army. All right, so they're, they're, they're definitely going to do some damage. Um, and then he says this in verse 5. This is his request. As they're going out before him, he's standing there probably talking to the military leaders and all the people were parading before him. And the king ordered Joab, Abishai, and Ittai. He says, deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. It's like, what are you thinking, David? You know, this is just not a wise military move. It's not you're putting your own troops in jeopardy. You know, it's kind of like you think back of our own military um, under certain administrations. They were given a job to do, but then they weren't given the means to do the job. You know, in other words, they were saying, hey, go over there and, and kill the enemy. But you can't do anything until, if you find them, you can't do it. Unless they actually pick up a gun and begin to shoot at you, um, you're not allowed to do that. Even though you know they're all terrorists. You can't just go and wipe them all out. You've got to be, you know, so what, are the, what does the enemy do? Well, they, they disguise themselves, right? And they all look alike. And so, you know, our military is at a disadvantage. Well, that's basically what he wants them to do. Hey, deal gently with Absalom. Go out there and... and take care of business, but deal gently with their leader. Well, you know, sometimes you have to cut the head off the snake in order to do business. And I'm sure David understood that, but like I said, his emotions were getting the better of him. And so you see here in verse 6, so the army went out, and you notice it says there, and all the people heard when the king gave the orders to all the commanders about Absalom. So this is very important a little later on in the story. And you're going to find out why. You know, he just didn't call uh, the commanders over to the side and say, hey, listen, if you find Absalom, you know, don't hurt him. Just bring him back. No, he kind of blurted it out in front of everybody. So everybody heard him. So all the soldiers heard him. Everybody heard him. And remember, this is the king talking. All right. Um, so verse 6, so the army went out into the field against Israel and remember, they're going against Israel. Why? Because Absalom, right, is, is kind of dis- disposed his dad. So he has all the army. He has Israel on his side. They're, they're following the Goldilocks, you know. And, <clears throat> and so as a result, David is sending out his army to fight against 
Israel, of whom he is the legitimate king. It, it doesn't make any sense, really. I mean, it does, but it's, it's hard to comprehend. So he goes out against Israel, and the battle was fought, and this is important too, in the forest of Ephraim. Now, even to this day, they say this area in Israel, you do not want to get caught in this area. They said, you can't, it's just, it's just a very heavily wooded, horrible terrain. You wouldn't want to do battle there for sure. Well, that's exactly where the battle was. Uh, and it says the men of Israel were defeated there by the servants of David. So David, with his ragtag army that he's thrown together here because he's a great commander and because there are certain individuals that are very loyal to him, they're willing to do whatever it takes to protect God's king. And here is Absalom. He has the entire Israeli army on his side, but he's not a commander. He doesn't know what he's doing. And so there's a lot of confusion probably, and they were defeated there by the servants of David, verse 7 says. And the loss there was great on that day, 20,000 men. So it just goes to show you that, you know, when you go to battle, there's a, there's a lot weighing on certain decisions. And so you say, well, what's the big deal with David not going into the battle? Um, well, who knows what would happen if he would have been there? You know, maybe he would have restrained the army from killing 20,000 men, and they would have been overthrown. Who knows? Because his emotions were mixed up there. So, so uh, his commander, definitely Joab, made the right decision by keeping David in the city during this time because they were able to go out there pretty much and just wipe the, 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 the uh, men of Israel, the, the armies of Absalom, wipe them out. And it says the b- battle spread over the face of all the country. And the forest, this is what I meant by it's so rugged, the forest devoured more people that day than the sword. <laughs> so there was more people somehow in, in the forest. I don't know if it was just so rugged they fell off cliffs or I don't know what happened. But just as many people were, or, or more people were devoured um, by the forest than the sword. And then you see here in verse 9, the reprisal, Absalom happened to meet the servants of David. So he's probably, in this point, probably on retreat. I mean, you don't want to be caught in the middle of a battle when you're losing 20,000 men, right? So he's probably on retreat. He's riding his mule, which in a weird way, that's what kings rode on um, back in the day for some weird reason. I I couldn't figure out why, but that's what most commentators said. It was a... uh, it was designated as transportation for the king. Um, so Absalom was riding on his mule, and, and this is, I mean, it's kind of funny, but it's sad at the same time. The mule went under the thick branches of a great oak. So he's riding, riding these, this mule through, in retreat, through these, these uh, woods uh, in Ephraim, and it says his head or his hair caught fast in the oak. So he's on top of his mule, and his long flowing hair is blowing in the wind as he retreats, and his hair gets tangled up in the branches of an oak tree, but the mule doesn't stop. <laughs> the mule keeps going. The mule was under him, and he w- the mule just kept on going on. And here is Absalom. It says, his head caught fast in the oak, and he was suspended between heaven and earth. <clears throat> some commentators say, well, some believe his hair was caught, and being how vain he was about his hair, I kind of like to go with that. That makes sense. 
Other people believe it may have been like a, a branch that was sticking out like a V, and as he was riding, he got his neck caught in there. So his head was stuck. But it seems like it would be easier to unstick yourself if you just had two branches and your head stuck versus your hair tangled. I remember when I was growing up, my sister, uh, Sue Ellen, and I, she used to have really long red hair. And um, we were laying on the bed um, one afternoon. She was taking a nap, and I was brushing her hair. I was combing her hair. And I remember, (coughs) I don't know what I did with this comb, but I got it so tangled. I got it so tangled in her hair, she literally had to cut a bunch of hair. She was so mad. <laughs> She's like, what did you do? I don't she couldn't get it out. And the more I tried, it, the worse it got. <coughs> and I remember when she woke up, she was like, what happened? <laughs> but um, so, you know, and, I, and uh, I, I remember when I used to have longer hair, when I was younger, we'd be running through the woods and, you know, a branch would catch her. I never got caught in a tree, but it would, you know, it, you, it would, it could hurt, you know, you pull your hair. Um, well, here he's actually dangling by his hair under this oak tree. And then in verse 10, it says, A certain man saw it. One of the, the, the soldiers who were with Joab saw it. And he said, Wow, look at, can you believe that? Wait, is that? That can't be. It is. Look at the hair. It's Absalom. He's hanging in the oak. And, um, you know, you have, you have this helpless Absalom hanging there between heaven and earth by his hair probably struggling, trying to get out of this situation. And one of the soldiers sees him. He runs back and tells his commander. And Joab says to the man, well, what, you saw him? Why did you not strike him there to the ground? What are you telling me about this for? So Joab is a commander. He has, he's a warrior. He has no mercy. He doesn't, you know, he, he doesn't pull any punches here. Why did you not strike him there to the ground? I would have been glad to give you 10 pieces of silver and a belt, which is kind of a a way of rewarding their soldiers. You would have been a hero, you idiot. Why didn't you do it? But the man doesn't back down. Now remember, Joab's a ruthless individual. He's not somebody you want to cross. But at the same time, this guy is not going to take the blame for this. He says, but the man said to Joab, verse 12, even if I felt in my hand the weight of a thousand pieces of silver. I would not have reached out my hand against the king's son. For in our hearing, remember, in our hearing, the king commanded you and Abishai and Ittai for the sake, for my sake, protect the young man Absalom. Oh yeah, so you want me to go kill him so that I get in trouble, not you. I see what you're doing. And that's what he says in verse 13. On the other hand, if I had dealt treacherously against his life, remember, the king sees all. He sees everything. He's got spies everywhere. He would have known exactly who did it. Then you yourself would have stood aloof. In other words, you're not going to stand by me and say, yeah, you know, I vouch this man did the right thing. No, you're going to back away and go, oh, sorry, dude, you're going to lose your head. <laughs> you killed the king's son. I'm not going to back you up. So this, this man was very privy to what went on in the military and how to do that. And Joab just gets frustrated in verse 14. He says, you know what? I'm not going to waste my time like this with you. In other words, get out of the way. I'll take care of it myself. And he took three javelins in his hand. Now remember, Absalom's still hanging, dangling by the tree in his hair, trying to um, get out. He took three javelins in his hand and thrust them into the heart of Absalom while he was still alive in the oak. So, and that didn't kill him, by the way. It tells us next, it says, in ten young men, Joab's armor bearers, they probably figured at that point, well, he's pretty much probably dead. He's not going to pull through this, so let's just finish him off. And we'll join in the victory here. They surrounded Absalom and they struck him and killed him. 
So poor Absalom's dangling there by his beautiful hair, looking like a porcupine with all these javelins going through his body, probably. In verse 16, then Joab blew the trumpet, sign of victory, and the troops came back from pursuing Israel. See, that's exactly what Joab said would happen. You know, if that's why he didn't want David to go with him. In other words, if David would have went with them, they're going to pursue David. And in doing so, they're going to have to defend David. But if David's not there and they're losing men, then, you know, they're not going to chase him down. But here, what happened? I mean, the men are there with, with Absalom, and um, uh, Joab blew the trumpet, and the troops came back. Why? Because they, they were pursuing Israel, because they knew Absalom was with them. So Joab restrained them. Verse 17, And they took Absalom and threw him into a great pit in the forest and raised over him a very great heap of stones. And all Israel fled, every one to his own home. It's interesting. Whenever there's a, uh, uh, a, a phrase like that, it says they, you know, they buried them in a great pit and they put a great heap of stones. You can do your own research on this. But there's, there's um, certain times in Scripture where when people who are um, killed or executed and they're not honorable people, that's how they bury them under a heap of stones. It's just kind of a sign that this, this character was not a, an honest individual. Wasn't a, it wasn't a good person. And you can see it um, time and time again when you look uh, throughout, throughout Scripture. Um, and so it tells us here also that he... Uh, actually, one of the places... I'll just read it for you. Joshua... Seven. I was just looking in the footnotes to find out where it was. Joshua seven. Joshua seven. Seven twenty six says this. Uh, and, and Joshua uh, said, "Why did you bring trouble on us? The Lord brings trouble on you today." And all Israel uh, stoned him with stones, and they buried him. They buried them with fire and stoned them with stones, and they raised over him a great heap of stones. That's one place they did it. And then the other place was in Joshua 8, 29. Same thing. It's, it's the same, same uh, phrase. It says there, uh, And he hanged the king of Ai on, <coughs> on a tree until evening. And at sunset, Joshua, Joshua commanded, and they took his body down from the tree, and they threw it in the entrance of the gate of the city and raised over it a great heap of stones. So it was really meant as a sign, as a warning sign. Look, this is how you're going to die if, if you, know, you cross us in this way. Um, and it says, And all Israel fled, every one to his own home. So they all ran home. The king's dead. War's over. We're going to get out of here before, you know, we're not going to, there's no reason to fight anymore. (coughs) Verse 18, now Absalom in his lifetime had taken and set up for himself the pillar that is in the king's valley. For he said, I have no son to keep my name in remembrance. And what that means is he had no son living. He had sons. If you you go back uh, earlier in Samuel, it tells us that he had, uh, I think, two sons or three sons and a daughter. But apparently his sons were, must have been killed in battle or something because at this point he had no son. Um, so he built this pillar after his own name and he called it Absalom's Monument to this day. 
So you can see how vain this guy was. He realized that, okay, there's no sons to take over, so I'm going to have to do something here so people can remember how wonderful I was. So he probably um, took time out of his busy schedule to pose for a, you know, some kind of a statue or whatever with the flowing hair and everything, and that's what he called Absalom's Monument. Selfie. Yeah, selfie. <laughs> <coughs> And then you have the report, okay, so Absalom's dead. He's under these heap of stones. <coughs> the war is basically over. And uh, Himeaz, the son of Zadok, said, Hey, let me run and carry the news to the king so the Lord delivered him, that the Lord delivered him from the hand of his enemies. So this is one of um, the soldiers that's loyal to David. And uh, one commentator said he's, he's pr- probably from a Levitical background. So uh, he was Israeli. And they, he wanted to go tell the king, let me, let me tell him what's going on. And Joab said, no, you're not going to carry the news today. Are you crazy? You're going to go tell the king that his son is dead? That, I, what do you think that's going to get you? I mean, that's the thinking here. You may carry news another day, but today you shall carry no news because the king's son is dead. And so at this time, everybody's standing there probably thinking, okay, well, how's the king going to find this out? Hey, you, Cushite, <laughs> you, you, you person that don't belong, belong to our tribe, we got a job for you, you know. Uh, go tell the king what, what you saw happen here. And this guy, probably maybe not even understanding what's going on, he bowed before Joab and he ran. I mean, Joab was someone to be feared, so you're going to do what he said. So he takes out, takes off out in the, uh, across the path there, running to, to the king, the King David, to let him know uh, what had happened. And Ahimeaz says, the son of Zadok said again to Joab, come what may, let me also run after the Kishite. So he's like pulling on his thing, come on, come on, please, can I go, can I go? You know, just bugging him. Finally, Joab says, why will you run, my son, seeing that you have no reward for the news? In other words, when you get there and you tell him the king's son's dead, you, you could be, you know, uh, looking at your head rolling across the floor. You don't know how David's going to react. You don't know what's going to happen. I mean, he's not in this right emotional state anyway. And he, verse, he kind of signs up for the thing. He says, come what may, I will run. So he said to him, okay, have at it, run. <laughs> then Ahimeaz ran by the way of the plain, and he outran the Cushite. So the Cushite, basically what this means, took a direct line to uh, the city where uh, Absalom, or where David was, Mahamian. He, he, he took a direct line there, probably through the woods, probably through whatever, maybe over some hills or whatever. It was a shorter route, but it wasn't a quicker route. And obviously, Ahimez knew that. And so he said, hey, I'm going to run this way. You know, it's kind of like if you were to um, uh, drive, you know, from, from here to Mountain View, which way would you go? Would you go El Camino or would you go, you know, take your time and go all the way down to the freeway and go that way? Well, it would probably take you a little longer to get the freeway, but once you get on the freeway, it's probably going to be a little quicker. That's kind of what the thinking is here. Anyway, he outruns <coughs> the Cushite. Now, remember, David's back at the city. He's sitting between the two gates wondering what's going on. And the watchman went up on the roof of the gate by the wall. And when he lifted up his eyes, he looked and he saw a man running alone. So it's a rather flat area out there. He's looking. He sees this little dust thing. He's like, hey, we got a guy coming. Got some news coming. <laughs> Watchman called out. He told the king. And the king said, if he is alone, there is news in his mouth. In other words, there's, he's got a message for me as king. And he drew nearer and nearer. And the watchman saw another man running. 
And the watchman called to the gate and said, See, another man is running alone. And the king said, Well, he also is bringing the news. So we don't know what's going on. They're a ways off yet, but we've got to wait here and, and wait till they get here. And the watchman said, I think the running of the first is like the running of Ahimaaz, the son of Zedek. So, you know, back then they didn't have cell phones. They didn't have, you know, these kind of things. So you, you, you took stock in communicating the way you could. So one way they would have it is they would have people that ran between um, groups of, of warriors. Hey, here's what's going on on the front line. You know, we need to tell you. This. Well, this guy may have been one of these runners. Obviously, he, he, he ran pretty fast. And they knew what he, he ran like. So, and the king said, he's a good man and comes with good news. So I know who he is. He's not, a, he's not an enemy. He's not a, he, I know who he is. He's going to bring us good news. Then Ahimez cried out to the king, all is well. And he bowed before the king with his face to the earth. And he said, blessed be the Lord your God who, who has delivered up the men who raised their hand against my lord the king. So in a way, he tells him what, he, what happened, right? The guy that raised up his hand against you is dead. And well, the king's not buying it. He goes, well, <laughs> that's fine and dandy, but is it well with young man Absalom? What about my son? And at this point, Jimenez probably takes a big gulp. Oh, no. <laughs> now I know why he didn't want me to come and bring me the news. <laughs> um, and he kind of cheats a little bit here. He lies. Um, he says, hey, you know what? I, I, don't, I don't know, but uh, when Joab sent the king's servant, your servant, I saw a great commotion. Something was going on. Uh, and I don't know what it was. <laughs> He's just like, I don't know. And the king said, okay, well, that, that's not much help. Turn aside and stand over there. We'll wait for the next guy to get here. So he turned aside and he stood still. You can only think what's going through his mind. Verse 31, and behold, the Cushite came. And the Cushite, just doing what he was told to do, probably doesn't realize what's going on. Good news for my lord the king. For the Lord has delivered you this day from the hand of all those who rose up against you. And the king said to the Cushite, well, that's fine and dandy, but is it well with the young man Absalom? And the Cushite, answer, Cushite answers very bluntly, may the enemies of my lord the king and all who rise up against you for evil be like that young man. Basically, he's dead. We took care of business. Uh, and you can only imagine what's going on in David's heart. You know, uh, there's, it's filled with remorse at this point. It says in verse 33 that he's filled with anguish. He was deeply moved. He went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And probably everybody could hear him weeping crying out, Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would I have died instead of you? Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. Why do you think, I'll just ask you this question, why do you think David is so remorseful over this? I get it, it's his son, but it was also a rebellious son that was trying to kill him. I don't think Absalom would have had any grace if, if he would have got a hold of David. He would have killed him. Blood is thicker than water? Okay. All right. Maybe he was remorseful that he didn't do a better job being a dad. Okay. Blaming himself for what? That he didn't do a good job 
Okay. Remembering what he had done as a young man, too. Okay. And how God didn't kill him. Okay. Remember the prophecy? Nathan's prophecy? Remember he said, because of what you did with Bathsheba and Uriah, what? The sword's not going to... Everybody's going to be wiped out in your family. That's what he told David. So, yeah, it's, it's all those things. But I think mostly it's David's realizing, man, this sin's coming back to haunt me. Yeah. And I am responsible for my own son's death. Not just this one, but the other one as well. See, that's what I think is, is a lot of the remorse is coming from. And I think it's legitimate. I don't think it's, it's fake or anything. I, I think he's really feeling, that's why he says, I wish I would have died instead of you. I wish God would have killed me instead of taking out his, his judgment on my family. Um, and then in verse 1 there it says, And it was told Joab, the commander, Behold, the king is weeping and mourning for Absalom. So somebody comes to Joab and says, Hey, what's going on? You know, we just went out. We kicked the tail of our enemy. We killed the leader, this should be a victorious celebration. We come back home, and now the king's up in the chamber weeping, and everybody can hear him crying out for Absalom, his son, the enemy that we just killed. That doesn't make us look very good. <laughs> Let's go out and tell Joab this. And it says in verse 2, So the victory that day was turned into mourning for all the people. I mean, you're not going to go out in the city streets and have a party a victorious celebration of your victory when the king, who you just fought for, is mourning. <laughs> it's, it's, that, that would not go over well. They do what the king does. So that's why it says it was turned into a day of mourning for all the people. For the people heard that day the king is grieving for his son. And the people stole into the city that day as people steal in who are ashamed when they flee in battle. So it's almost like they lost the battle in a weird way. That's how they're feeling. And Joab's seeing this. And he's saying, hey, this isn't right. Verse 4, the king covered his face and the king cried with a loud voice, oh, my son, Absalom, oh, Absalom, my son, my son. Joab gets word of this. And you see Joab's anger and anger came. Joab came into the, the house of the king and basically chewed him out, which took a lot of guts in and of itself to do, but Joab was the man to do it. If anybody was going to do it, you have today covered with shame the faces of all your servants, all these people that went out and fought valiantly for you. You you shamed them. You have this day saved your life. They have saved your life and the life of your sons and the life of your daughters and the lives of your wives and your concubines. I think he throws the concubines in there just to remember what Absalom did with the concubines publicly in front of everybody. Verse 6, because you love those who hate you and hate those who love you. What What a convicting statement. You love those who hate you and hate those who love you. Somehow there's a tie into parenting there. (laughs) I'm sure parents have felt that at some point. 
I'm sure kids have felt that at some point. For you have made it clear today that commanders and servants are nothing to you. For today, I know that if Absalom were alive and all of us were dead today, then you would be pleased. That's what you're showing everybody right now, David. You need to kind of stand up here and be a man. Therefore, arise, verse 7, go out and speak kindly to your servants, for I swear by the Lord. (laughs) In other words, this is no joke. If you do not go, not a man will stay with you this night. And this will be worse for you than all the evil that has come upon you from your youth until now. And you can go back and you can look at the history of David's life and all the stuff that happened to him up to this point. It all wasn't good. There was a lot of bad stuff. And he said, it's going to be worse than all that. And then the king arose. He took his seat in the gate. And the people were all told, behold, the king is sitting at the gate. And all the people came before the king. And David returns to uh, Jerusalem Now Israel had fled every man to his own to his own home. Um, You know, you 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 read this and you're thinking, "Wow, what a!" I mean, it's it's really an incredible story. Um, It's it's a it's a incredible illustration of good and evil. I mean, when you think of what Absalom stood for, Absalom stood for everything that was anti-God. Absalom was a picture, you might say, of the Antichrist. Because David was what? A type of Christ. He was against God's chosen leader. Just like the Antichrist is against God's chosen leader. And see, I think we, <coughs> we forget sometimes, and with all the evil going on in our world, somehow we think that, you know, the enemy, the Antichrist, and Christ are, are uh, equal yeah, equal enemies. You know, they're, 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 they both got their little grip on things, and sooner or later, hopefully, good will over. Well, that's not true. The enemy's a defeated foe. Uh, and you see it illustrated for us here. Uh, they're not <coughs> co-rulers of the world. God is in control here, and God is carrying out his purpose. And you see it time and time and time again in the life of David. I mean, at this point, David didn't even probably want to be king. I mean, he willingly gave up. He willingly left Jerusalem. He's probably thinking, ah, you know, I'm done. But that's not God's plan. That's not God's purpose for David. It's <laughs> like, no, you, whether you like it or not, you're king, pal. And this is going to work out this way because this is my plan, not yours. See, sometimes we have to stop and we have to realize that, you know what, we're not in control of our own destiny. It's God who's in control. It's God who's sovereign. And so as you relate to God, consider a couple things <coughs> in way of application. Consider your own, your own motives. Why do you do what you do for God? Um. You look at Absalom, why did he do what he did? Well, he did it for his own. He was in love with himself. I mean, he had no concern with the purpose of plan of God. It was all about building his little kingdom. 
But in David's life, at least you see glimpses of him being willing to go along with the program of God, even though sometimes he kicks and screams. I think he had, in the end, the right motives. And then secondly, not just your, don't just consider your motives, but consider the God you're serving. Absalom had no consideration for God whatsoever. And yet David was at least mindful of who God was. David was at least mindful that he was in this position that God had put him in and that he was willing to, to deal with this. And then you look at the, the outcome, consider your outcome as you relate to God. Here's Absalom hanging in a tree by his hair that he's so concerned about. He ends up dying, and now he's buried under a bunch of stones. That was the outcome. And that will always be the outcome for those who go against God's plan, who go against God's anointed leader. In this case, who go against David. Because he was God's choice, God's king. And yet David, time and time again, he receives grace. He receives mercy from the Lord. And yet, there's still judgment in his life. That's why Absalom's dead, really, is a judgment that was laid out against him and his behavior earlier on. You know, I, I think of the song we sing um, in Christ Alone, that phrase that says, No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand till he returns or calls me home. Here in the power of Christ I'll stand. You know, sometimes as dark as it can get in our own lives, as Christians even, we have to realize that, you know what? God is in control of this. God is perfectly in control of this. It may not seem like it. It it, it may seem like, man, everything's going to topple over in a second. But you know what? Even in the the chaos, God's staying hand and God's staying power is present. So it closes with, illustration of Absalom and Christ. Here you have Absalom hanging on a tree. The Bible says, cursed is anyone who hangs in a tree. Here's Absalom hanging on a tree. He's cursed. He's pierced through by his enemies. And then he's killed and he's buried. That's Absalom. You think of Christ. The picture of Christ. What happened? Hung on a tree. He was cursed. He was pierced through. He was killed and he was buried in a tomb. In each case, you have judgment, you have the curse, you have the tree, you have the piercing, you have the buried. It's amazing. The hymn we sing sing, says this, Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah. What a Savior. See, Absalom in his warped view thought he was the Savior. (laughs) He thought he was going to do all this, but all his plans just crumbled. Just like all enemies' plans are going to crumble. You know, read Revelation 19, right? I mean, in the end, we're on the right side. In the end, we win. There's no doubt about that. 
even as a church body, sometimes, you know, it's, it's difficult. We're not a big church. And so sometimes when, you know, a family moves to another area or moves out of the area or whatever, you know, it affects our body in a big-time way. Sometimes it's frustrating. And you, you have to go back and you have to remember, wait a minute. God is building his church. Christ said he will build his church. And the gates of hell won't prevail against it. Period. Doesn't matter what's going on. That's irrelevant. God will sustain not just this church, but the church in general. And see, the end of Absalom really pictures for us. It gives us a great illustration of the end of all the enemies of God. Anybody who dares take a stance against our God is going to end up like Absalom. Guaranteed. It's, it's over before it even begins. See, and that's why we can rejoice. That's why, you know, that's why it's, it's such a blessing to, to have a faith that, you know, we walk to an empty tomb. Absalom's body's still in the ground somewhere under a heap of stones. But Christ is what? He's risen. He's, he, he, he rose from the dead. In 1 Corinthians 15, 25, Paul says, he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. Speaking of Christ. And that's what will happen. And that's why it's so important to understand that, you know, when it comes to our faith in Christ and our understanding of who we are in Christ, that we are on a, uh, the victor's side. We don't need to walk around like, you know, with dust on our heads and going, woe is me. No, we're, we're, we're on a winning, in a winning battle here, even though sometimes it looks dark. You know, um, th- that's, that's the, the, the thing to hold on to, to understand that, you know what, it's not our battle to fight. It's Christ's battle. And he already won the battle because he was already risen from the grave. You know, it's just a matter of kind of letting the time run out. Um, and then all his enemies will be put under his feet. And that's why it's so important during this age of grace that we get the message out that, you know what, there's still time on the clock. There's still time for you to come over to this side. Why would you want to be on the losing side? Why would you want to be on a side that's going to be condemned to hell forever? Uh, I, I don't want to be under the feet of our Lord and Savior. You know, I'd rather be looking at him face to face in glory one day.